Hey guys, I'm Norb. And I'm Mike. And we are the Watchmen. The men who watch. If it's on a screen, we're watching it, talking about it, and sharing our thoughts with you guys. Today we're going the other direction we usually go, and we are going to review the top five most disappointing movies of all time. Yep. Usually we talk about the movies that are good, sometimes movies that aren't so great, but focus on movies either you're going to stay away from or they sound so bad you might be curious to go check them out. Either way, before we get into it, we just want to say thank you to all of you who are watching on our YouTube channel. Thank you for your support. Please hit that like button, subscribe, and hit that notification bell so that you'll be notified every time a new video comes out. And if you're listening on podcast, we appreciate your support as well. We hope you'll continue to do so because it's you guys that uh, makes us do what we do here. And uh, we would love for you to continue listening and tell others about it. So thank you so much for your support. As in the, the famous saying from the 80s Bartles and James TV commercials, thank you for your support. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> all right. So, Mike, as well, usual, I'll toss we, to you and get things right, started. So we have a list. We're going to have our 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. But before I start, Norb, let's talk psychologically just briefly. What do you think makes a movie bad? And, and, and what do you think makes a movie bad? Well, I'll start by saying the movies on my list, and we kind of talked about even how do we name this segment, because we thought, we do we call it the top five worst movies? And then I started to think, you know, as movies that started to pop into my head, I, I realized these aren't necessarily just bad movies in and of itself, but disappointing in the sense that we may have had really high expectations of this movie, and it let us down. So... That said, that's that came. That was a lot of part of what my list consists of. But I think no matter what, when you don't enjoy a movie, there's always three things that you have to have. You've got to have a good script. You 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 need to have good acting, and the overall just filmmaking direction and just how the whole movie's put together is kind of the third part. You kind of need three all three things to work well and if one's not so good if you can do really well at the other two it might make up for it but generally you want those three things and i mean as filmmakers ourselves you know we always try to focus on you know starts with the script so the writing's got to be good and as part of that is the characters and then you hope you get you know good actors to help bring it to life and then and then as the director of the film you know you try to make sure everything comes together and there's some things where there's some movies that were you thought it had maybe everything going for it. And for some reason, it just didn't come together. And sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it. And others, it's blatantly obvious what its shortcomings were. But I think with the list we're about to see, at least I know on my list, they're different reasons. They definitely don't have the same thing in common <laughs> that is the reason why I didn't like those movies. They're very different. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited to talk about these things I can't stand because they've been things that have... Haunted me for for many years. But how about Haunted you, you your, for many years. Well, you know, I mean, when you when you <clears throat> see a movie yeah. and it lets you down, that disappointment stays with you for a long time. Especially when you really had high hopes for things. So uh, that, that's my take on it. How yeah. about you? When you approach putting this list together, well, my list is a mix of a few movies that I remember seeing in the theater and just wanting to leave. And it's very rare that I go to a movie in the theater and all I can think of during the movie is, I just want the, this to be over so I can leave. Most of the time, I can find some good in a movie, even if it's 
not perfect. I can find something interesting or find something just to keep me at least engaged. So I have a couple films on here that were just bad movies that I wanted to be somewhere else. And then I have a few that I had high, high expectations for and was disappointed. So I have a mix. And it will, as always, be fun to see if our number one is the same <laughs> for different. Not so much that we liked it, but we equally hated it with a passion. Yeah. So, well, I, I expect I, at I, least one movie. I expect uh, a to be on that list, maybe more. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure there'll be some surprises along the way, and I'm sure there's. I know there's at least one or two in here that are on my list that won't be on yours. At least I think, but we'll find yeah. out sh- soon enough. So, well, you want to yep. get the ball rolling with your number five. Sure. So my number five is one I don't think you've ever seen. I didn't see this with you, but this it falls into the category of a movie that I really wasn't that interested in seeing, but I had a friend that wanted to see it and we went and halfway during the movie, I was so disgusted with it. I wanted to leave and I do have synopsis to read. I'm going to go ahead and read a synopsis for all these bad films. So this movie is called Dude, Where's My Car? From (laughs) 2000. Jesse and Chester, two bumbling stoners, wake up one morning from a night of partying and cannot remember where they parked their car. Hence, Dude, Where's My Car? Which prompts them on a journey to find it. Along the way, they encounter a variety of people who include their angry girlfriends, Wilma and Wanda, whose house they trashed, an angry street gang, and a transsexual stripper hounding them for a suitcase full of stolen money. This movie had a budget of $13 million, Eesh. and it made a whopping $73 million. So wow. it was a smashing success, and I thought it was one of the worst movies I have ever seen. I saw this with my friend Jim. at I, It was a movie theater in downtown Kirkland that is long gone. And I remember halfway through this movie thinking, this is so stupid, so stupid. I just want to leave. And at one point, Jim leaned over to me and he said, dude, next movie's on me. So he was clearly thinking the <laughs> so same he didn't like, thing. He didn't like it either. It was bad. Yeah, okay. It was, it was <laughs> I was, was going to say maybe he liked it you didn't. That'd be even worse. <laughs> no, he said it in the middle of the movie. He leaned over and said, next one's on me, meaning we need to see something else. Uh, to make up for this travesty that we are sitting through. And I I can't say much else about this movie because I put it out of my head as fast as I could when I left the theater. So I can't get into details about anything beyond what I read in the synopsis. I just, it was a stupid movie and I will never, ever watch it again. Well, I never saw it. And I think I stayed away just because of the title. But you said it was Jim's idea to go see this one? My friend Jim. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we and were just going to go see a movie and we were looking at what's playing. And he said, let's go see that one. And I thought, okay, all right. I don't know, <laughs> but okay. Of all the choices that were out that night, that was the one that, that he picked. <laughs> I don't know what else was playing during that time in 2000. So I didn't see what else was out at the same time. But... Apparently, some people liked it because it, it, it did make money. Yeah, but apparently. It was a just lot of money. a stupid movie, stupid title. Uh, and I'm okay with comedies about, you know, th- you know it's kind of like there's The Hangover. You know, this is a Hangover type movie, which this was long before The Hangover came out. And I thought The Hangover was pretty funny when I saw yeah. that. But this was not funny. It was just stupid. Stupid name, stupid movie. 
But that's all I can say. <laughs> so, okay. what's your number five, Norb? <laughs> all right. Well, I have a very different story with this one. So, this is a movie you probably haven't seen. At least I hope not. Uh, it's called The Big Blue from 1988. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? It does not. Okay. I good. have not so seen can, it. Let me tell you all about it. Uh, so this film is a heavily fictionalized and dramatized story of the friendship and sporting rivalry between two leading contemporary champion freedivers in the 20th century. Director Luke Besson is famous for his imaginative visual technique and breathtaking action sequences. And one of the most stunning, beautiful films ever made, The Big Blue, features gorgeous underwater photography and spectacular location shooting in the French Antibes, the Greek islands, Peru, and Turmina in Sicily, but it is the emotional intensity of the film experience and mythical themes of the story that have made it a cult phenomenon. Stars Rosanna Arquette and some French dudes. Now, now when I, I hear of Luc Besson, I think of The Fifth Element. So do is, I. And yeah. I didn't even know at the time, this was you know almost nine years earlier when before Fifth Element came out, I didn't know who Luc Besson was. But if you were to read that synopsis to me, I would have thought, wow, that sounds like a really good movie. Well, whatever I saw was not what that described. (laughs) But then again, it might have been my mindset. uh, So so this movie I saw with Rob and under very unusual circumstances. Okay, so the reason we saw this, because we certainly didn't pick this movie. The reason we did is because at that time uh, we were roommates, Rob, myself, and our, our buddy Sam. And then there's our friend Brian, who we're still friends with. Uh, he was also part of like the, the four of us. The four of us went to uh, Hawaii together for our senior trip. So we were a good group. This was only a year after that. So, you know, we're into our, uh, our college experience. Clearly, we didn't have relationships of our own because we had time to kill. But, but Sam was on a date. And we decided, for, I don't know why, but Brian, me, and Rob decided we were going to spy on them during their date and, and just follow them around the whole evening. So we, losers, had nothing else better to do. We decided we were going to tag along and, and follow Sam. So we followed Sam to the SeaTac uh, food court where he took his date to. And then they, did, they, went, they went to the uh, South SeaTac uh, Theater and watched The Big Blue. I don't know who chose the movie, but we had to go to it because in order for us to spy on him, we had to go to the same movie. <laughs> so we went to The Big Blue, not knowing anything about this movie. Now, again, maybe we were so distracted trying to see what Sam was up to during this whole date that we weren't focused on this character story. But all I remember was this was the most boring movie I'd ever went gone to in my life. There was a lot of shots. I guess at one point it's kind of interesting because they, they, it's about these guys who try to dive with no mass or no air and see how long they could go down for and then come back up. But it was so boring. We just wanted to get the heck out of there. And the only reason we were there is because we wanted to see if anything interesting would happen with Sam and his date. Nothing did. So everything was boring. Sam was boring. The date was boring. The movie was boring. And it, it goes down as probably the most... It's called The Big Blue, but Rob and I have, have uh, called it The Big Bore. Because <laughs> it's the most <laughs> boring movie we've ever seen. And I'm sure there's, if I watched it now, maybe with a different focus, maybe I'd get more out of it. But it was just a movie that took for... I even watched the trailer just to kind of refresh my memory of it. And even the trailer was boring. Nothing wow. happened in this movie. It's so dull. And I maybe I missed the boat because I was only, you know, I was a freshman or a junior. And, no, I was a freshman in, in college then and had my mind on other things. But it certainly didn't connect with me. And uh, it, it remains to this day the big bore, the most boring movie we've ever watched. So <laughs> I was happy to, to say I at least got to share it with... with with a friend 
couple friends actually, and a friend who didn't know we were there, or at least his date didn't know we were there. But the story it's, of how we got to see this movie was a lot more fun than the movie itself. And uh, I think it's the last time we ever decided to, to spy on a on a friend's date. We, we figured later on in life we had better things to do. But that was the first. What, and what last I find time we interesting listening to you talk about it is, I think, well, clearly there must have been a trend of movies with blue in the title because you had the Blue Lagoon, Blue Thunder. <laughs> The big blue, and then I think around ninety there was my blue heaven. So of all was, the the ti- titles with oh, blue, actually this there's a lot that you mentioned. There's blue bloods. Yeah, blue, so there's a lot of blue movies, but yeah, this one was definitely the most boring blue movie I'd ever seen for <laughs> sure. So that's number <laughs> Maybe five. The blues. Number five on my list. All right. I, I, there's nothing I can say, so I'm I'm glad I haven't seen it, and I I know I never will. So number four on my list is one that we did see together. And this represents the other movie on my list. There's two on my list that I really wanted to be someplace else. The other three were just bad, uh, but I stuck through it hoping, you know, with always with a little bit of hope that maybe it would improve. But this movie was from 1997 called Event Horizon. Oh. <laughs> when the event horizon, a spacecraft that vanished years earlier, suddenly reappears, a team is dispatched to investigate the ship. Accompanied by the event horizon's creator, William Weir, played by Sam Neill, the crew of the Lewis and Clark, led by Captain Miller, Lawrence Fishburne, begins to explore the seemingly abandoned vessel. However, it soon becomes evident that something sinister resides in its corridors and that the horrors that befell the event horizon's previous journey are still present. This movie had a budget of 60 million and it made a whopping 27 million. So this is one that I think most people would agree with me was a terrible film because it didn't even make its money back. And I remember when we all went to see this, I remember what you and I were excited about is when we saw that it was scored by Michael Kamen. Who, who did the music did for Die, Die Hard. And we were thinking, oh, Michael Kamen, and it's got Lawrence Fishburne. This is yep. going to be good. It was terrible. I remember halfway through it, I was thinking, this is just stupid. I want to leave. But I stuck it out. But I remember, I think you would agree with me. I think we all walked out of that going, that was awful. That was terrible. Yeah. I, this almost made my list. Actually, I, I had put it on my list at one point, but it got knocked off. Uh, for for other reasons, it was a terrible movie. I remember what was really annoying that I don't remember much about the movie other other than it was like a horror film in space. It was, but they yeah. they just had so many jump scares, and it wasn't that it was scary. They just had loud music and sound effects to jar you out of your. You know, it'll be silent. All of a sudden, and and that loud sound would just jolt you but it wasn't scary it was like a cheap trick that they kept doing over and over again and just started to get annoyed by it. it's like stop yeah. doing that you're not scaring me you're just startling me without any real context to make it even feel frightening it was just annoying after a while like somebody coming up behind you and like slapping you in the back of your head you know you just don't you don't want to just stop already it's not funny it's not it's not entertaining it's nothing and that's what I remember the most was just annoying jump scares that weren't even jump scares just loud sound effects trying to scare you that, that's kind another of all thing I remember, I remember. <laughs> another thing I remember is there was a director of photography in the Seattle area you and I worked a lot with his name was Joe 
And I remember he got a magazine called American Cinematographer, and I was at his house one time, and and his American Cinematographer was sitting on his table, and it had Event Horizon on the front of it oh. about this groundbreaking cinematography. And I remember thinking, eh, it doesn't matter. It was a crappy <laughs> film. You can talk all you want about how they did these great cinematography inventive tricks, but the movie was bad. So I have never seen that movie since, and I will never watch it again. And I, I hope you don't have a Blu-ray copy of it at home either. <laughs> well, I actually do. No, I do not. <laughs> I know you'll have that you in physical media. That will not be in so. my collection. <laughs> nope. No interest. Event Horizon, just a painful, painful experience that I don't want to ever relive again. So that is my yeah, number four. Th- th- there are times when I wonder, just like with The Big Blue, or of that movie for that matter, is if I watched it now, again, many years later... Would I still feel the same way that I did then? And I, Interesting I have you the, bring that up. I, I actually want to have a discussion about that at the end of the show. I've okay, got we, a, will, we a, will explore a, that. We have more movies to talk about. Okay. I've got a surprise. My surprise is based on that very topic. Interesting. So okay. All right. Well, let me go to my number that. four here. My number four movie was from 1986, The Karate Kid Part Two. You've seen mm-hmm. this, right? I have. Okay. Karate Kid Part 2. All right. Let's do the synopsis real quick. I think everybody saw the Karate Kid Part 2 when it came out. (laughs) I think so. That was a big popular thing back in high school. After learning that his father is dying, Karate Master Mr. Miyagi, played by Noriyuki Pat Morita, returns home to Okinawa, bringing his protege Daniel-san, Ralph Macchio, with him. In Japan, Miyagi is surprised to discover that his old sweetheart, Yuki, has remained single. Meanwhile, Daniel is attracted to Yuki's niece, Kumiko, played by Tamlin Tamita. But romance must be put on hold while Daniel and Miyagi deal with local bullies and long-harbored grudges. And this is the first time I listed. It was one of those, I was excited to see this movie because the first one was so good. Right, I love the first movie. So many good things that were taught. You love the relationship with between Miyagi and 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 Daniel's son, and all the things he teaches him on how to you know f- learn how to fight and learn karate properly, and you know and the way they he came victorious at the end. So you're excited to think what's going to happen in part two. What are they going to build on this? I'm so excited to see. And the first thing you find out is his. His girlfriend is not there. You know, it's like she, she's broken up with him. So right away, it's like, oh, man, she didn't even sign up for the second movie. Translating the actress wanted too much money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she moved on to bigger and better things. Adventures in Babysitting, I think is what it was. But, yeah, so she, I forgot, what's her name? Do you remember the actress? Elizabeth Shue. Elizabeth Shue, yeah. She was, and she did move on to bigger and better things later, but she did not do that second movie. That was always a bad sign. But what really, there was so much about this movie that that, that really just had a bad vibe. First of all, I had just gotten back from Japan. So I'd spent a year in Japan and came back, watched this movie with my Japanese host sister who was still staying with us at the time. So I'm mm. watching watching this with fresh from Japan eyes with somebody who's from there, okay? So right off the bat, um, the depiction of Japan was so messed up. I remember thinking, is this for real? This is like out of some kind of 1950s a uh, uh, propaganda video making Japan look like this backwards society where people still listen to Elvis and dress up in 50s clothes in diners and stuff like that. It was just such a weird thing. And I remember uh, Mikagi, our uh, exchange sister, the whole time just like shaking her head like, 
what is what is this what is this Japan in this movie? So and and similarly, I had the same reaction. So right away, the the, the depiction of Japan was so bizarrely written. Uh, but even with all that, the the the, the Part of that probably drove me the most nuts was that what was so cool about the first one was how Daniel-san learned the techniques of wax on, wax off, and paint the fence, and uh, side to side, and all that stuff. Mow the lawn. <laughs> Mow the lawn. <laughs> Inside joke. But the, in this one, everything he learned was completely stupid and ridiculous. First of all, he's helping Mr. Miyagi around the house like he did in the first one. But instead, he shows Mr. Miyagi with, with his hand on a hammer, and he... Hits the nail into a stud with one swing. It's not even a swing. It's like a push, which you have no power in. And so he teaches him, oh, you have to focus. And so Daniel-san hits this nail in with one shot that you can only do with a nail gun. You can't do it at all. I mean, I've hammered enough nails in my life to know you cannot hit one hammer with a nail into a stud and have it go right in unless you miss the board. You went right into the drywall or something. So anyway, so he's teaching this. Right away, I was like, this is stupid. You, that does not work. And then there's another time when uh, then he does this thing where he, he applies that thing to break like these sheets of thick ice. Right, using the focus technique, and he breaks this thing, and it's like, no way can you break these big, thick things of, of real ice in the way that he did. And then finally, just to put in, add insult to, uh, to the whole thing, the final big lesson that they teach is the secret to uh, his karate. Is he's got one of those little drums, you know, the little yeah. What do you call that? <clears throat> it's a drum with two little. Circle, I, forget, I forget the name. I forget the actual name of it. But it's, it's, it's a little mini drum with a handle, and when you spin it, the, the little balls on strings. Yeah, that's what I tuk, remember. Tuk, 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 tuk. So at the end climax of the movie, everybody's, everybody's spinning these things, it. and it's like this sort of like oh, channel the power of this swinging technique. And all it is is Danielson going wah, 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 and the and the and the bully not putting any defense up, getting getting beat. To, to, it's like what technique is that? That's not a technique. That's just the swing your arms and beat the crap out of the other guy who's not defending himself. <laughs> it's just it's no payoff. You learn nothing. It's it's insult to to your to your. Um, to everything that you loved about the first movie, and it was just so cheeseball. And, and believe it or not, it got worse when they did Karate Kid Part Three, which is—it was just so sad to see such a cool starting point for going down the toilet. Which I'm glad they saved it <clears throat> with the YouTube resurrection of Cobra Kai, where they actually do do a good job of bringing Daniel Bryan <coughs> and the whole Karate thing back. So throwing that positive thing in the mix, but Karate Two was just the start of what became a really bunch of bad Karate Kid movies from that point on. Just what I that find funny is that you went from the Karate Kid Two to Three and then to Cobra Kai, and you entirely skipped over the remake of the Karate Kid they did with Will Smith's son. Yeah. Which which I'm not sure if you forgot about it or it was just so bad of an idea you you were just not even going to uh, mention it. Yeah, it, it was bad. <laughs> I just, I just, there were more. I think it, it went beyond, I think there was three and I think there was a fourth one with a girl or something. I don't even think I watched that one. I just, at that point, the whole thing was, uh, it was a dumpster fire of a, of a, of a series. So yeah. anyway. That was my thought. Did you did you watch that? You saw it, right? Did, did you have the same reaction I did, or did you like that movie? Well, I remember when The Karate Kid 2 came out. I mean, The Karate Kid was so good, and it was one of those movies that I felt like everybody saw it. And that was in the 80s when, to live movies, you went to the theater, and there, was, there wasn't the home video aspect yet. And so when The Karate Kid 2 came out, my parents took the whole family 
We all went, and it was always a big deal when my parents took the whole family to a movie. That meant, and my mom, she took karate. She even had me she take did? karate. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. She was a black belt. What? Your mom? Yeah. Yeah. Back in the eighties. Yep. <laughs> Whoa! Yep. You never told me this. this yep. Is from breaking news. Mr. Mac. Mr. Wow. Mac was an instructor, and she had me take karate and. I, I was never a black belt. I think I ended up with two stripes. So I had a white belt with two stripes. But so I never get a you didn't even get a purple belt. <laughs> yeah. So you're probably thinking, hey, you took karate. That means I like beat up on kids and gotten big kick fights. No. Karate practice was just doing katas. You just did moves and and you practiced. Like you, but you never actually like you didn't hit stay anyone. you didn't stay with it long enough then. <clears throat> nah. Right? No, eventually I just played tennis, which is where yeah. I was Headed anyway, but, I had uh, no idea. I had yeah. no idea. I think that's okay. one reason why my my mom was all gung ho for the the four of us going to the Karate Kid too, because karate was a part of our life. And what I don't, I mean, I've seen the opening of Karate Kid two recently because uh, Rob, I think, had recommended taking a look at it before you get into Cobra Kai season two. So I picked up Karate Kid two just so I could watch the open. But when I saw it in the theater. All I remember is just that drum thing you were talking about. I remember at the end, everyone's doing about, and I remember in the theater just thinking, "This is not working for me. It's not. I'm not feeling it." I just in the Karate Kid, I was feeling it. You know, when he puts his hand up and he's gonna yeah. do the big kick, you're just Training like, when technique. he kicks him, you know, the whole theater just went, "Yeah!" But in the Karate Kid too, when everyone's going, you got these crowds of people. I just remember thinking. Just, I wasn't in. So, yeah. And I never saw it again after that until I watched the first part just for Cobra Kai. And that was really more to watch with my son, Brett, because we were watching Cobra Kai together. And and I think it was good for Brett. It's like, I think Rob's description was because he had recommended Cobra Kai to me. I'd recommend it to you. And Rob said, before you watch season two with Brett, get the Karate Kid 2 Watch the first 10 minutes and then turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Because that's that all you need to cool. see. Yeah. That, that you're, and you're talking about the scene where right after the tournament's yeah, over. Yeah. And, and, and the, the bad sensei has the, has the, yeah. the fight with, uh, with, with, with Mr. Uh, Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi. And that part's good. Yeah. That part yeah. kind of sets a little bit of the, the, the tone. Yeah. But that's funny. After that, the whole movie goes to trash. But, yep. Yeah. That's uh, the only two good things to come out of that were two songs. I am the man who will fight for your honor. Peter Cetera. That's that song. And then I think Earth Angel, Earth Angel from New Edition. I think mm. they use clips out of the, because I remember a part in that, of the music video. I think they used scenes from that movie. I'm pretty sure they were tied together. So those are only two good things to come out of that movie were those two songs. So other than that, <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I just watched Forrest Gump over the weekend with uh, Brett, which was a really good movie. Oh, uh, yeah, so. that's worth talking about. I, uh, yeah, yeah, we watched it for the first time with my kids uh, a few weeks ago. Still good yeah. today. Still great all movie. Right. Save that for another show. So getting into my three, two, and one, now we're entering films that are not so old, so our younger audience can can either get behind me or get in my face and disagree. But my number three is a personal, personal disappointment. And it comes out of my love of Aquaman. Aquaman being my favorite mm. 
comic book superhero growing up when I found out they were finally going to make an Aquaman movie because forever I thought they should make an Aquaman movie. They could do so much underwater. Underwater is this unexplored world. And, and I've, I've always been fascinated with, with what's down there and all the, all the, it's, it's a whole nother universe on our planet as far as I'm concerned. And that's why I like Aquaman so much because his, his home base is, is under the sea and growing up, Aquaman was my favorite character. I watched Aquaman cartoons. I have Aquaman comic books. So when I found out they were going to make an Aquaman movie, I was really excited. And then I, I heard they cast Jason Momoa from Game of Thrones. And I was okay with that. I thought that's, that's totally cool. Uh, Aquaman came out in 2018. And I do have a little synopsis, so I will read that. Once home to the most advanced civilization on Earth. The city of Atlantis is now an underwater kingdom ruled by the power-hungry King Orm. With a vast army at his disposal, Orm plans to conquer the remaining oceanic people. And then the surface world. Standing in his way is Aquaman, Orm's half-human, half-Atlantean brother and true heir to the throne. With help from royal counselor Volko, Aquaman must retrieve the legendary trident of Atlantis and embrace his destiny as protector of the deep. This movie had a budget of $190 million, and it made a whopping $1.15 billion. Jeez. So this wow. movie was a smashing success financially and one of the greatest disappointments of our time, as far as I'm concerned, because I think they did an injustice to the Aquaman character I love. And I know these filmmakers are thinking, we can't make him this orange suit-friendly friendly person who talks to the fish and rides a seahorse and helps out. We got to make him a drunk, down on his luck, unhappy person who who they make fun of him talking to the fish. And it's an ongoing joke through the movie. Oh, you talk to the fish? Complete slam, slap in the face to me as a fan of Aquaman. So this movie was not made for me. This movie was made for people who don't know Aquaman at all and just want to see Jason Momoa from Game of Thrones because they're infatuated with him. Wasn't so, Aquaman blonde? Wasn't he blonde as well? He was. He was blonde. Yeah. Blonde white guy. So yeah. <laughs> they had to they had to fix that. And and when when they said Jason Momoa was playing Aquaman, I was totally cool with that. Uh, totally fine. It's how they treated it. And his main enemy, well, he has a couple of enemies in the movie, but of course they try to bring Black Mana as as the comic book enemy, they bring that character, and it was terrible. A one-dimensional bad guy. The Black Mana character was not interesting. I only saw this movie once. I saw it in the theater, and this was one of those movies that it was really painful for me because when I left, I said, I will not own that movie. I will not buy it, and I will not watch it again. And I have been true to my word on that. It does not sit in my collection, which it's probably goes down as the only comic book superhero movie of the last 10, 15 years that I do not own mm. because it, it hurt me deeply how much they, they ridiculed the Aquaman that I loved and made fun of him. And, and just, again, they made him a, a drunk, you know, unhappy, tragic a character with all kinds of problems. And, we got a preview of Aquaman in the other DC film. What was that film called? Uh, 
It was the one where they had the Flash, Aquaman, Cyborg, and and uh, Wonder Woman. And, and oh, you yeah, got they a did preview a quick of tease. Yeah, they got yeah. a quick tease of what was coming. And that wasn't the greatest movie either, but you know that's where you got to meet Aquaman. And I remember, even then, I was okay. I, I wasn't feeling that yet that they'd ruin him for me. I was, you know, even then he was drinking a little bit and. You know, there was a really probably the only funny scene in that movie was where he's talking and all of a sudden he says, you know, I'm really just a child who's just trying to get out of his shell and overcome a lot of. And you realize Wonder Woman had the magic lasso wrapped around his leg. And so because right. I remember thinking, why is he saying, oh, and that was funny. That was probably the funniest part of that movie. But when they actually had a standalone film, it was a huge disappointment for me. But I think most people went to see this movie because they wanted some popcorn they wanted to just see some special effects, and that's what they got. And that's why it made $1.15 billion. So this movie was not made for me. It was made for people that never knew anything about Aquaman before, except that maybe he talks to the fish. Well, I wasn't a huge fan of Aquaman, but I knew him from watching you know, the, the Justice League cartoons. And, you know, I read, I read a few, you know, saw him on some comic books, but I wasn't, you know, but I, I knew what he was about. But I didn't have the same history of, as, as you did with the passion for the character. But what I <laughs> did feel after I did feel watching that movie, I felt that this just got the same DC treatment that they've done to all the other superhero movies. And to be honest, I have not been impressed by much of what DC's put out in terms of their their superhero movies. It just fe- felt like another, eh, eh it's not, nothing great. Nothing, I wouldn't watch it again. Um, some but yet it made $1.15 billion. <laughs> it did. Well, it got some of your money and, and some of mine, too, to contribute to that. But would yeah. I see it again? No, I wouldn't. Was I, would I put that on my mm-hmm. list? I would not, just because I didn't have the expectations. I think I already tempered my expectations because I've already seen some Batman and Superman movies, and those didn't impress me either. So to me, that was just sort of, eh, typical DC quality movie. Another letdown of what could have been pretty cool. But I didn't have yeah. the same, you know, I have the same feeling. I wouldn't own this movie. I wouldn't watch it again, but I don't have that same feeling of being uh, hurt <laughs> as you did with your love of the character. Yeah. It's too bad. Very one-dimensional bad guys in this movie, too. And a lot of the DC movies have suffered from that one-dimensional bad guy. They've just never had any, even though they're based on bad guy characters in the comic books, they just made them uninteresting. So I just felt like the, the ocean aspect was, wasn't very interesting either. It felt... It wasn't. It, yeah. it, it, it was a very digital underwater world, and instead of exploring what could have been cool about that, it's just more of a place to do more dazzling swimming around effects and things like that. It just... Yeah, the, 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 what could have been a cool ocean world was not really utilized in any form that could have been a, much more of an interesting universe, as you said. Yeah. But, all right, all well, right. for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay back in the 80s. I started with the 80s, and I'm still in the 80s. And this movie for my number three is Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers. <laughs> Read the synopsis as if you really need one. The apparently comatose Michael Myers, played by George P. Wilbur, is being transferred from one hospital to another, but he wakes up when the ambulance crew talk about his surviving niece, Jamie, played by Daniel Harris. After slaughtering his attendants, Myers sets out to find his one living relative who is, fortunately, being cared for by a kind and resourceful foster sister named Rachel. Meanwhile, the ever-cautious Dr. Loomis played by Donald Pleasance, remains on the killer's path. Now, in the context of things, 
if you look at all the Halloween movies that have been made, this is not the worst one, probably. There have been worse ones made after this point. But the reason why this is on my number three of the list is you got to look at context and when and when what period of our lives when this came out. So I saw this with Rob and I think some other friends. And you got to remember, we grew up and, and lived Halloween and watched it, imitated it, used the music from. We lived and breathed Halloween 1 and 2, for that matter. So Michael Myers was almost, he was a legend to us. He, was, he represented everything that was scary slasher movies uh, we'd ever known. Jason was a close second. Freddy Krueger showed up in there, too. But Michael was the first one. And it wasn't... I mean, that came out in, what, late 70s, the first one? And then Halloween 2 was like 1980, I believe. So this was eight years coming because they came out with Halloween 3, but had nothing to do with Michael Myers. It was a whole different spinoff that had nothing to do. They were starting a whole new story out, and it it didn't really go well. I kind of enjoyed the movie uh, premise with uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. So Halloween 4 comes out, and so we've already been sort of Deceived when Halloween 3 came out. Wait, where's Michael? Oh, this has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Okay, all right. And then we find out, okay, finally, Michael Myers is returning in, in, you know, years later. So we've been waiting for this movie for like eight years. This movie, this legend that we'd grown up almost worshiping and Im- idolizing and <clears throat> imitating. And it was such a letdown in every regard. First of all, the premise. Okay, in, at the end of 2, they're in a hospital room. The doctor is with Michael. They let all his oxygen and gases and stuff, and he lights the, the, the turns on his lighter, blows the whole hospital up. Donald Pleasant's got to be dead because he lit the thing. Michael Myers is still walking. He's totally engulfed in flames. He finally drops, and he's just torched. He's just burning up to death. Somehow, and they decide they, that he's still alive. It's like, how the heck is he alive? And how the heck is Donald Pleasant still alive when he has a few scars? But he should be a torched, barbecued stick by this point. But, okay, they let him live. Fine, let's go with that. But then, the worst part about it is if you're going to bring Michael back, you got to have him look like Michael Myers that we loved about in first number one and two. He comes back with this goofy, all-white, clean mask that looks nothing like the first two. And it's just, it's it's silly. It's the most dumbest-looking mask I've ever seen. And it was hard to even be most scared of it. Most dumbest-looking. Dumbest-looking. <laughs> it was just dumb. It would look dumb. It was just dumb. And and I, I couldn't get scared of it because it looked so ridiculous. And really, when you think about it, he lost his first mask in the first movie. The fact that he went out and found the same mask and the same outfit <laughs> doesn't even make any sense. He should have just found some other random mask and it should have been something else. But instead, he gets a worse knockoff version of the first mask. The, the whole thing is just bad. But how hard would it have been to have just recreated the, the look of the first two? Would have helped the movie a lot. So that was probably the biggest thing. But uh, the, uh, then they could, once they messed that up, that really just sort of set the whole tone of how wrong this would be. And then after that, it wasn't really scary. Uh, he also had these big shoulder pads. So I guess shoulder pads were kind of in in the 80s. So he has these poofy uh, shoulder pads. So he looks, he looks ridiculous. It wasn't scary. And it just ruined everything we had held, so waited eight years for. And it was such a disappointment to see the return of our legend put up in such a, a, a bad presentation from his look to the movie itself. Not scary at all like the first two were. 
we were so disappointed. We must have complained for an hour about how we would have fixed that movie <laughs> if we had been directing it. It was so sad. And the question it is, did it make money? That. You know, I didn't look up how it did. I, I think, well, it apparently has done well in, in video and a cult following. You know, I mean, it's Halloween, so people still followed it. I just think yeah. for the people who are the diehards like us who are lovers of the one and two, this was a hard pill to swallow. And obviously it made money because they made like four more after that and then did a reboot so it didn't die there it kept going and it just kind of got worse so it was that sad feeling as you'll see as a common thread in this uh very many movies that i have that 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 sad disappointment when you realize what you'd held on to and cherished for so long let you down in a way that you knew things would never be the same after that get used to me saying that (laughs) many times here but yeah that was it Whenever they release a new Halloween movie, you always go. I go in hopes that they're going to somehow recapture the, the the magic that we loved about the first two, and and yeah. uh, they, they they actually didn't do too bad. They had a little bit better on this most recent version that actually brought Jamie Lee Curtis back, but there were still a lot of things that they didn't like about it. He looked better. He looked better than he did before, but mm. there was a lot of stuff I didn't like about that movie either. So it's it was hard. It was a hard pill to swallow at that age, years of, in the in the waiting. Eight eight years for this movie for crying out loud. Anyway. You know, there's nothing I can say about that movie. Never saw it. <clears throat> yeah, I, I was know, never into really, the Halloween movies anyway. Yeah, you weren't a horror movie guy, so I know it's hard to just to share that same sort of passion. <clears throat> when for guys like me and Rob and Kurt and who grew up, you know, just. Watching, having watched it so many times over and over and over and over again, knew everything about the song, his movements, his mask, the breathing. I mean, those things meant everything. When you've messed that stuff up, you're like messing with living legend. Sad. All right. So what you got next? So uh, we're down to my number two, and this is where I'm expecting one of my number two or one to be as your number two or one. That's my expectation. Okay. So my number two, uh, and my number two and one, we get into the what were huge disappointments and ones that I had expectations high and wanted them to be good. My number two is one that I know is going to make Rob very sad. And just by me saying that, he already knows what it is. It's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. My number two as well. So we are locked sync on this one. We're locked in. It's the height of the Cold War and famous archaeologist Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, returning from his latest adventure, finds out his job at Marshall College is in jeopardy. He meets Mutt, played by Shia LaBeouf, a small young man who wants Indy to help him find the legendary Crystal Skull of Akator, and the pair set out to for Peru. However, deadly agent Irina Spalko, played by Kate Blanchett, is searching for the powerful artifact, too, because the Soviets believe it can help them conquer the world. This had a budget of 185 million bucks, and it made a whopping 790 Million, so a financial success for sure, but a very huge, huge, and I will say huge disappointment for me. So, Norb, since this is your number two, since I read the synopsis, I think it's fitting for you to talk about this first as to why it's such a disappointment for you. Well, like I said, there's going to be a recurring theme in these next couple movies. I'm guessing with probably this one and the next one, yeah. In that this is that that uh, sequel itis where you're coming off of something that you've as a beloved 
film or saga. And then this one, particularly, probably the longest wait. I mean, I complained about waiting eight years for, for Michael Myers, mm -hmm. but we waited. I mean, uh, the Last Crusade came out, I think it was 1987, I think is when Crusade came out, I want to say. So this came out in 2008. So this is 20, right? 21 years later. Yeah. So we waited two decades for this and heard all the rumors over the years of, oh, they're making a fourth, Indiana Jones Stones 4. And, oh, the script is, oh, no, they're changing the script and it's gonna, they're going to make it this year. And it kept getting put off, put off. Finally, they said they got everybody back together. They got Lucas, they got Spielberg, everybody's here. So we're thinking all this time spent and waiting for the right moment, this has got to be good, right? <laughs> they waited to not rush this thing and finally the stars align and this is what we get. This is the best you have to offer in terms of a story. I'll just say it. This will set the thing. We can elaborate on it. But this is what kills, killed the movie for me. Digital gophers, refrigerator, monkeys, bugs, aliens. I mean, those yeah. five things... If I, I'm sure I just say those words and you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're just yep. cringe moments in the movie where you just go, what the heck kind of Indiana Jones movie is this? What is this doing in here? And uh, yeah, I was so, I was so disappointed. And I so badly wanted it to be good. I was so rooting for it every step of the way. And it was so sad as I remember watching this movie feeling like, oh, uh, oh. Oh. oh, and you just felt yourself slipping and slipping, slipping as, as the movie went by. And I think and at one I, point I said to you, I said, hey, Norb, I've been reading about the movie, and Steven Spielberg said, we're not using any digital tricks. This is going to be all old school. We're going to do it the classic yeah, way. That's right. I remember I told you that, and we're like, okay, this sounds good. This sounds good. And then the first shot is digital gophers. <laughs> yeah, and you right feel the betrayed. Bat. You feel betrayed. And it wasn't. I don't know if I would have cared if it was a real gopher. Maybe that would have eased the pain a little bit. But the fact that it was an obvious digital gopher just made it that much worse. It's like right away you felt George Lucas's stamp coming in here. Hey, you know, <laughs> hey, Steve, you know what would be great? Let's put a little digital guy in here, you know? Wouldn't that be cute? Well, you know, it's well known that George Lucas's stamp was the whole alien story because... Steven Spielberg said, George and I take turns on story ideas, and it was his turn, and he want, he always wanted to do the aliens, and I said, okay, George, well, we're going to do it your way, because it's your turn. So, aliens it was. Should have skipped his turn. Awful. Well, of course, but, you know, George's turn should have been skipped many times as he started to get older and, and continued to have all the say in, in these franchise movies. I, I felt the same way as you. Um, go ahead. What, what I feel something. most tragic about a, a, an Indiana Jones movie is that everyone to that point, one, two, and three, obviously I hold Raiders on the highest level. Temple of Doom, slightly less than that. And then uh, Last Crusade, less than that. But in every one of those movies, there's there are those rewatchability scenes. I, I hold the whole thing yeah. about the, that if you're going to skip, there's going to be parts where you kind of go, ah, I can skip this part. Oh, there's this scene. And Raiders is full of them. Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. While there's a lot of stuff I, I will complain about, there's some great sequences in there. The minecart chase, the, the fight with the big dude, um, <clears throat> the opening scene in the in the uh, Obi Wan um, in the Obi Wan Club. Of course, Raiders. You got the truck chase. You got the 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 the, the Well of Souls. You've got the the opening of the Ark. You've got the fight in the in the marketplace, the the bar fight. 
all these things are like, even if you don't watch the whole movie, you just go to those scenes, you get a nice fix. Ah, I got my indie fix. There's not one scene in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull where I want to watch again. And there's just not. There's not one scene that makes me go, oh, this part's pretty good. There's there's not one moment. And that's why I think I hated the movie so much because there wasn't anything. I've not watched it since the first time. We all watched it together. And because after after viewing it, I felt like there was just nothing worth revisiting that would have made me go, oh, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. It would just bring back bad memories. And that's hard to say in a movie that carries so much you know, rewatchability and and love for. It's so weird to go from those three to this drop off to this movie. This movie is in my collection, and the only reason it is is because I had to buy it because it was part of the whole <laughs> Indiana too. Jones Blu-ray collection. So <laughs> Rob too. is known for said he says, "Yeah, that that disc will be good uh, coasters for you and Norb for your drinks. That Crystal Skull disc, <laughs> it's in that collection and." So it's, uh, I haven't used it as a coaster, but, you know, I gave it another shot. I showed it to my son. He wanted to see it because, he, you know, I'd shown him the first three, and he kept asking me, well, can I see the fourth one? I said, yeah, we'll watch it sometime. Well, when can I see the fourth one? Yeah, we'll watch it sometime. And, of course, I was just putting it off. But finally, I, I showed it to him, and I thought, I'll, I'll give it another shot. And it was just as bad. <laughs> I, I, there was nothing, nothing that made it any better which really, really sucks because, again, this is a movie I wanted to love. And if mm-hmm. you get into story, you talked about ants. You left out one thing that just absolutely drove me nuts is that I don't remember his, the character of his friend. But do you remember his friend was his friend on his side and then he double crossed him? And yeah. switched over to the Russians. But then he double-crossed the Russians and switched back over to the Indiana Jones. But then yeah. he triple-crossed and switched back to the Russians. And it was disgusting. It's like you don't double-cross, triple-cross, quadruple-cross through a movie. It's It makes your character just a joke. And, and I think that makes it too easy to solve plot problems by having this character flop like that. And it made me not care about him, and I got tired of it. I just thought, it's stupid that he keeps changing sides. I've never seen that in a movie. Yeah. I mean, it's okay to, to switch sides once and maybe maybe then see the good and switch back. That's done a lot. But then right. to switch back after you've switched back, then you've lost me. You remember I think, that? I think I kind of quit caring after the... Th- the third double cross. <laughs> I was already yeah. kind of done with the whole thing. I just remember at the end too, when the other part was, you know, Marion coming back was a big deal because we didn't see her in the mm-hmm. third movie or the second movie. She'd been yeah. gone since Raiders and that was kind of mm-hmm. his first love, at least as far as our concern, uh, we were concerned. And then she comes back and she's sort of this bumbling shell of herself. I mean, she's obviously yeah. older, which I'm, I knew that was going to happen, but she wasn't anything. In the first movie, she was this feisty, strong character. In this one, she just felt like she was sort of, I don't know, just a, a, annoying. <laughs> she, and, and, and just a drag to have along. It's like, why are you even here? You're not adding anything. You're just making me like wish yeah. you were gone. And I wanted the old Marion back, you know. But that was the other thing, too, is just um, the, 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 the too many too many people, too many people in this band. I, I like Indy when he's just one, maybe two people. This is when he's at his best. When he's got a whole entourage, it's never a good thing. But there were some other things. I, I hadn't watched it again, so I, I had to, for research, for reminder purposes of covering for the show, I, I, I went on YouTube and watched a few. I think actually there's this thing that's like everything wrong with 
Indiana Jones and the mm-hmm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And they point out some things I totally forgot about. Like the Crystal Skull has like magnetic properties and so it pulls metal right. to it. That's right. But yep. it does it in such an inconsistent way where it only sure. does it when it's convenient to the story. Because really, if you had a magnet and it has the superpower, things would be pulled to it constantly. But instead, it's like nothing's affected. But as soon as they open it and it needs to be important, suddenly everybody's like, ooh, pulled to it. And then another point, it just stops. It just Things like that drive you crazy. There's no consistency to it, no, no sense of realism in the world. You know, and if something's... You know, you can complain about, you know, could he have survived the, the nuclear thing? All right, we could debate about that one, right? But at least that is just a one issue. Could he have survived the nuclear blast and the subsequent fall in the refrigerator? But when you have things that are like properties established in a story, a magnetic thing's not real. We know that. But when you're establishing and saying, okay, in this world now, in the physics, this thing attracts metal. That's its property. Well, it needs to do it all the time. Otherwise, if it only does it sometimes and then it doesn't, you're betraying your own ground rules that you established in your world. You know what I mean? It's like if you have gravity, there's got to be gravity. If you have magnetism, you got magnetism. I know this is a stupid thing to even talk about because it's such a small part of the story, but it just adds up. These things add up to where your logic and your brain just starts telling you, this makes no sense. I'm throwing the whole thing out. So I think this is where someone else who is against you on the show would say, you're too deep, man. You just need to learn to have fun. That's <laughs> not, no, man. It's like, it's, it's, you, you establish rules of the game. You got to stick to the rules of the game. Otherwise, your whole world that you've created has no consistency and you can't count on anything. Drives me nuts yeah. when they do that. They make their own rules and then they break them. That's just I one agree. of many things. Oh, and there's one small thing that was brought up. There's a picture on the desk of, um, of, um, um, his buddy uh, Marcus, and yeah. it's like you know he, he's died. He's right. He's gone by this point yeah. in, in the show. But yep. he has a picture of him, and it's a picture of him when he's lost in Luke, in in part three in, in Last Crusade. And <laughs> it's like, why, why is there a picture of him when he's lost and it's in a frame? <laughs> it's like, where would this picture have even come from? It's yeah, that's just it. Who took the picture of him being lost and how did he get it? <laughs> it's not like a nice posed smiling. It's like him like. Like this, like somebody snapped the yeah. photo and they say, hey, Indy, you remember that buddy who was lost uh, several years ago? He died. I, I happened to pick, take a picture when I was hanging out and uh, here, I'm going to put it in a frame and give it to you. This is dumb things like that. It's I honestly think the hard part about making a, a sequel to a franchise that is so beloved by people and it is over time even grown and grown is that when Spielberg says... I want to make Indiana Jones 4. And Harrison says, I agree. I'm going to play Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones 4. Anyone else they get together to write the script or anything, I don't think people are going to question problems or concerns. Because as far as they're concerned, if Steven Spielberg thinks it's great, it's going to be great. Because why would you ever question Steven Spielberg or George Lucas or Harrison Ford on any issue with an Indiana Jones 4 story, plot device, computer effects, you would never question anything they do. They are gods. They can make whatever they want. And they obviously have a vision, right? Because they've made these great films over the years. And I think that's part of the problem is these people have so much power. I don't think anyone's ever going to question them about anything they do. And I think what makes a great movie is when you do have some sense of conflict or people being willing to bring up concerns 
in a way that, look, let's address these together and work them out. But I think in the case of Spielberg and Lucas and Harrison Ford, no one's going to get in their way. But I, I wondered, did they all sit down when it was all done, watch and go, that's our best work ever. This was a great film. I, I can't I imagine know. them sitting down and actually feeling like what they created was everything they dreamed it to be. Because could they be that off and think that it's great? I, I guess I've never really listened to an interview with any of them talking about what they thought of the movie. I'm sure they would have in some press, you know, PR things talked about how great the movie was. But is that possible? Because we've seen them make know. great movies and watch this. It's hard to imagine that they would actually think that this was a job well done by themselves. Well, I will say when you're a young filmmaker and you have to answer to a studio, you have a set budget to work within. You have to make concessions and you have to get creative with the money you've got. And you have to answer to studio executives, which I'm not a fan of, but I guess you could say that is kind of a way to keep you in check for the good or the bad that it might be. And when they made the first three Indiana Jones movies, they had to have financing. They had to have other people involved. They were younger filmmakers. They, they still had edge. They had, they had that drive. But they're old filmmakers now. They finance these movies themselves. They only have to answer to themselves. And that... I think it doesn't mean it's a guarantee for it to be a bad movie, but I think it can be a, a bigger chance of a failure because you don't have those checks and balances that you do when you're younger. It's funny, though. We've talked in, on the show about other movies where the studio execs meddled and messed know, up that what up. was a pretty good yeah. thing, you know? And yet... This is that case where it seemed like yeah, it was pretty much, they probably had unfettered, you know, they could do whatever they want. Yeah. And nobody was going to put the kibosh on them with these such powerful people working together on it. And yet, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> how, did, yeah. how could so many great things come together and be so bad? I still don't get it. I would love to sit down with them and, and ask them, what were you really thinking? <laughs> how, how do you yeah. justify that this is a good movie? You know, I, I watched love to hear uh, an honest answer. After I watched The Crystal Skull with my son, I went ahead and watched the bonus features. I wanted to learn what they felt about this movie, okay. uh, talking about it after the fact. And I, I remember bits and pieces of the, the behind the scenes. And, you know, you watch it and it, it kind of helps you develop. It's hard to not have a, a little bit of soft spot because, you know, the movie making is hard. Even if you have a lot of money, it's hard. You have to deal with so many external curveballs and factors from the weather to just things not working when they're supposed to. Everything not coming together at the same time is difficult, even with a lot of money. And Spielberg talked about there's a scene in Crystal Skull where these where these uh, tribesmen all come out of the walls. I don't know if you remember that part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They come out of the walls and and the walls have all this 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 art on them, and the art disintegrates and falls to the ground as the tribesmen come, and as if they're being resurrected from being dormant for you know hundred years in these walls. And I remember watching that in the movie, thinking, "Ah, nice digital effect, all this stuff." Well, watching the behind the scenes, it actually wasn't a digital effect; it was real. They they had to get it right the first time. They had one shot at this because it was tons of money that went into building these disintegrating wall props that literally disintegrated. And I watched that and thought, well, that's that's really commendable that they they made that real. But sadly, it didn't make me like the movie anymore. It's still then you just come back to the story 
and how you felt about things the characters say and do, and all the other things, the digital ants, the aliens, the gophers, the nuke the fridge moment, all those things, they, they so supersede any little things like that that you might even learn. I thought it was fascinating, too, the, the editor of this film. I can't recall the editor's name, but he is an old-school editor. He has Isn't edited Michael every one. Is it Michael, Michael Kahn? Kahn, yes. He's yeah. edited every one of Spielberg's movies. He is his editor. And so Michael Kahn grew up editing films with reel-to-reel. Yeah. The old school way where you have the film on this side and the film reel on this side and you cut and splice with scissors and you play and it tape through. Tape it together, yep. You tape it together. And so because Crystal Skull was done in the time of digital editing, they built this digital station for Michael Kahn with all the controls he was comfortable with and they had it behave exactly like the old school reel-to-reel wow. editing system because <laughs> that's the only way he can work. And I think, Whoa. well, that's that's really something. And the editing of the film is fine. I mean, we watch the action scenes, it's cut right. And I think to myself, wow, I mean, it amazes me that Michael Kahn can cut a film so old school, but it still works on a modern edit style. I mean, he can do quick cuts much quicker yeah. than he had to do back then in the 80s. And right. that's really cool. That's really cool. But even... That it didn't make me love the movie anymore. I have no interest in watching it again. I think that and, 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 and just goes back to the, the the backbone as we talked about in the beginning. Those three things you got to have. It starts with the script and the story. And I think no matter how they had executed all those things, it, it, the story was flawed from the beginning. I just think the whole yeah. alien premise. Like I said, aliens don't belong in a Indiana Jones movie, my my opinion. Yeah. It's about archaeology and, you know, finding up old things of the past and stuff like that. Aliens shouldn't be part of that to me. That just doesn't feel like it. It's like X-Files meets Indiana Jones somehow, you know. And I think that's where it yeah. started and everything else just grows from there because, you know, I acknowledge the difficulties and the challenges of making any kind of a film and the effects that go behind it and everything. But if your work, if all that stuff, all those... People who the army of people who have to create all the details to support that one trunk of the tree, which is the script. And if that script is already flawed, the foundation is is cracked, and everything yeah. else is just going to fall <clears throat> with it. Even if they have beautiful branches on this tree, if the trunk is not solid, the whole tree is going to fall down. I think that's what it comes down to. Despite pulling off some pretty cool stuff uh, outside of that. Do you remember John Williams' little addition to the famous theme? You know, dun, 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 dun. remember he added the little piccolo? The piccolo goes, dun, 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 dun. it has that little okay. high, high. He added that into the the typical sound of the horns. And I remember okay. it was a nice little addition. I I remember I even played it for you in the car, and you went, "Oh yeah, I can hear the slight the, the slight addition the, he added." That, that wasn't in the other three. Yeah. Oh. I don't yeah, remember it was just that. An addition. Just a huh. small you have little addition. to show it to me again. I've forgotten thing. since. I've forgotten everything about yeah. this movie. <laughs> yeah. And and yet they're going to make another one. Isn't there another one slated to come out in like next year or something? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Which it's like, oh, and my we'll gosh. go see it. We'll go we'll see, see it, it and we'll and still we'll... have hope. Maybe maybe they can surprise us. I mean, our expectations will be low, and that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. But we will go. So, and that's They'll why they're making money. these movies. They're guaranteed to make money. They can't yeah. fail. Even if it's a bad movie, they can't fail from an investment standpoint. And, right. you know, when you're making a movie, 
it's got to make money. It's got to make its money back and then, then make some on top of that to pay everybody involved. So they'll make it. Will it be no, good? They'll make it and we will pay it to go see it. And chances yeah. are we'll come out disappointed. Hopefully not as disappointed as, as the last one. But to me, it's, it's not that hard. It's not that hard to come up with a good premise that doesn't require... You don't have to bring in aliens to make an interesting Indiana Jones movie. Just go back to what he's good at. Just make sure he has... this. Is, here, this is the key to a good Indiana Jones movie. If you're listening, George Lucas and Spielberg, I know you guys are listening to me. Have a fight with a big guy. Make sure he fires his gun a lot. Make sure he cracks that whip several times. And have a good action vehicle chase. Throw in a well, horse they did in all that too. in Crystal Skull, though. They did every one of those things in Crystal Skull. But do it well. And don't, <laughs> yeah, and don't put aliens. You forgot to add that part. <laughs> and, and, but do and don't it put well. aliens. And don't make everything digital, doggone it. No aliens and no digital creatures. Yeah. And then it'll be better. Gotta do it well. Forgot that part. Okay. Old school so, action can still happen. So, well, so all right, that well, was, that was that our was number two. two. And we were on the same page. And something tells me we're probably gonna be on the same page for number one. I think Are we we're talking on about the same a movie that came too. out in 1999? No. No? Oh, maybe we're not on the same I guess page. Yes, we're not. We're not on the same page. Okay. Okay, well. I guess you got to go to your number one then. Well, I had to go with my number one as a very, very recent disappointment. And this is one of, uh, again, this is, was not only a disappointment. Oh, I know what you're talking about. The franchise, but it was a disappointment where during pretty much the whole movie, I just wanted it to be over. And what a sad feeling I had even feeling that way. This is Star Wars, the rise of Skywalker from 2019. When it's discovered that the evil Emperor Palpatine did not die at the hands of Darth Vader, the rebels must race against the clock to find out his whereabouts. Finn and Poe lead the resistance to put a stop to the First Order's plans to form a new empire. While Rey anticipates her inevitable confrontation with Kylo Ren, some flash... That's... And there it just ended. Never mind. Bad synopsis. (laughs) Uh, it should have ended with this movie is going to be a disappointment. Be ready. Well, <laughs> the budget was two hundred seventy-five million, and it had a box office of one point one billion dollars. So again, a financial smashing financial success, and a smashing smashing disappointment to me. I can I am shocked. This is not your number one. That it's a fact of the two. Norb, it's not even on your list. Uh, but this movie for me was just a tank. And I, I, I will go off on it in a second, but I'm going to let you speak. Well, it's not on my list. I do have a film on here of the same saga, of course. Uh, not this one because, and I'll, I'll, probably the main reason is because this wasn't. This doesn't fit into the the theme of what I've been saying about the the last two and what will be the third movie was. Okay. My expectations being disappointed. By the I time we I, got okay. to this, by the time we got to Rise of Skywalker, my Star Wars uh, hope for greatness had already dropped to below, you know, below market value, below you know sustainable levels of really feeling like there's still life to be had here. I kind of, I think that last movie was, well, we've gone this far and we need to close it out. And so it didn't bother me as much 
as it did you. Not that you went in hoping it was going to be the next Star Wars of Episode Four or anything like that. But I think I had just seen it all, had been disappointed as I've ever been. I've had problems with pretty much all the movies leading up to this one. How much worse can it get? And there were times where I was like, oh, this isn't actually too bad. And there were times where I was like, eh, yeah, okay, that, we could have done without that. But I didn't, dis- I didn't hate it as much as you did. And I, I just didn't feel as disappointed. I just was, I think I just needed to just close it out. Like let's just finish this out, and well, I was kind of maybe detached. That's, maybe that's maybe why. that's why this movie to me was the biggest disappointment because it was supposed to end the nine part saga, which even back when Star Wars came out, it had always been talked about it was going to be nine movies, and that had been known for a long time. And so this was it. This was the final, the final one, and I thought. I thought with all the feedback they'd gotten and all the, the difficulty pleasing the fans and, and the challenge of just making a Star Wars movie to work for everyone. And also, I actually thought the Han Solo film was pretty good and I liked Rogue One a lot. And even Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, I didn't like. I, I, I mean, I actually liked it pretty good. I, I did not like it. Uh, we talked about that on one of our old shows about that we both felt that the the last Jedi wasn't too bad. It had a few things, but it wasn't too bad. So that being said, the the final wrap up, I I did have hope. My expectations were low though; they were not high. I was just hoping that it would be decent, kind of like I felt about Rogue One or or Solo or the one before it. So when it just went downhill pretty much from the get-go and it, I, it could never recover for me. Every time I was hoping, you know, Babu Frick, I mean, all these characters, you know, Rob sent me a link that people have made music videos about Babu, Babu Frick. And it's like, ugh, just character drove me nuts. You know, and all I could go on and on. I, I really would like to save this. I think, Norb, we should do a show on this one because I know it's coming out on Disney Plus if it hasn't yet. It will, and I think we should watch it again on Disney Plus and do a review of this. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna restrain myself from continuing to, to blast this film, and I'm just gonna say it. It is my number one disappointment, uh, of of all the ones I can think of. Wow. And I'm pretty sure I know what your number one is now that I've had a chance to think about it. And, I, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But that, but but if that's the one I think it is, I was not as disappointed as you when I left that movie. But over time, it disappointed me more and more. It's one of those where disappointment grew on me. <laughs> I'm talking I remember, as if no, I remember. I, know I what remember it is. you weren't as disappointed. I remember being shocked that you weren't as disappointed I, as I was. Because I tried so hard. I was trying to find the good in it. I was I was desperate. I was desperate to find the well, good in it. Let, let's 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 so, let the cat out of the bag here and so yeah, people can, we can, we can move right into that. Figure it's totally it out. Fine. So all right, staying in the Star Wars universe, my number one most disappointing film of all time would be Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom yeah, Menace. Came out sure. in nineteen ninety nine. Here's the summary of that movie. Obi Wan Kenobi, played by Ewan McGregor, is a young apprentice Jedi Knight under the tutelage of Qui Gon Jinn, Liam Neeson. Anakin Skywalker, played by Jake Lloyd, who will later father Luke Skywalker and become known as Darth Vader, is just a nine-year-old boy. When the Trade Federation cuts off all routes to the planet Naboo, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are assigned to settle the matter. 
This movie had a budget of $115 million and uh, ended up making over a billion dollars, $1.027 billion in the box office. Okay, so we've already been kind of a little bit of a ranting of Star Wars. $2.7 billion. $2.7 No, no, one point, sorry, sorry, no, $1.027 billion. So a little oh, over okay. $1 billion. No, no, let's not, let's not give it that much credit. A financial uh, success, again. A financial success, almost made it nine <clears throat> times uh, what it... What it cost to make. Okay. Yeah. So the reason why I put this one as the highest one was, again, it's like my like my Halloween and like the, the Crystal Skull. We had waited 15 years. I believe it was 15 years for this movie. Return of the Jedi came out in, I believe, 83 or 84, 83, 84. So we had to wait about 15, maybe 16 years uh, for this movie of a beloved franchise. And not only did we have to wait for the time, so we went from a time when we were in junior high and now we were full adults. This year also leading up to this, we had made our visit to Skywalker Ranch. We had a couple of friends who worked there. They gave us a tour of the beloved mystical Skywalker Ranch. We actually got to go there, got shirts, souvenir shirts. So we had that uh, leading up to it. I remember when the trailer came out in the theater for the first time. I don't remember what movie we thought, saw it in or what theater, but I remember when we f- first saw eyes on that trailer, the anticipation was out the roof. I mean, we were looking at everything, and we rewatched that trailer over and over and over and over again. And the expectations for this movie couldn't have been any higher. They were high for Indiana Jones, but I think this had the greatest expectations of a movie that I could think of in my lifetime at that point. I mean, this is the movie that had transformed science fiction as little kids in elementary school in the third grade to now as adults in close to our 30s at this point, we were wanting to see what was the story that led to this beloved franchise. So all those things were going to it, leading up to it. And... It was so sadly disappointing, even from the opening title scroll, I remember thinking, I don't get what I just read, (laughs) because it talked about trade and federations and blockages, and I wanted to hear about rebellions and princesses, and this, and I said it was this business talk, and I was like, what, 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 who's, who's what, what federation, and I want to know about the empire and the rebellions, anyway, so right away, I, I remember didn't, not even understanding what was going on, and it, it, it just went downhill in so many ways, the, uh, just the, the acting of, uh, what's his face, Jake Lloyd, who plays the young Anakin, awful. And, and, and Natalie Portman, who is a really good actress in every other movie except Star Wars, somehow she got turned into this wooden robotic actor directed by George Lucas. She shines everywhere else and turns into an absolute monotone, boring actress in this movie in particular, but really in all the other ones, she's no better. Don't know how that happened, but it did. And there are two good things that came out of this movie. I should say three. Two things for the movie and then a musical thing. But the two good things I like about it were the pod race. The pod race was fun. And the lightsaber battle with Darth Maul at the end was really cool to see lightsaber battles on a whole nother level that we hadn't seen it with that sort of dynamics and acrobaticism and all kinds of stuff. We'd never seen lightsaber battles like that. 
So two of the coolest things about the movie in the as far as characters, Darth Maul, really cool villain, Qui-Gon Jinn, probably the best actor in the whole thing, and they kill them both at the end of the movie. It's like, oh man, the two best things you got going for you, and you kill them, and you keep alive the annoying kid who ends up becoming a different actor who's just as annoying in the, in the subsequent movies, and, and Natalie Portman stays alive, and her acting doesn't improve. Um... So those are those were a couple of the, the bright spots, and they killed them both. And probably the best thing that came out of that that wasn't in the movie was the soundtrack, the the score. Probably one of the best Star Wars themes that weren't part of the original Star Wars uh, score that was introduced uh, at, in, in the in this film. But other than that, most of everything else is fast forward material. I, I, I pretty much skip everything and just stop at the pod race, skip, 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 and get to the to the lightsaber battle. Unfortunately, while you're watching the lightsaber battle, you have to go back to the stupid battle at Naboo with with freaking what's his face, um, what's his name? Who's the annoying guy? Jar Jar, the Jar Jar led army and all that stuff. You have to go to that before you just just give me more Star Wars lightsaber stuff. That'd be you could actually make a recut of this movie and take the pod race. And edit all the lightsaber battles and probably be about 30 minutes and then you'd actually have a pretty good movie. If you could just stick with that, that would be fine. But anyway, I haven't done all the talking, Mike. Are you done? I'm done. Now you can go. <laughs> so listening to you, what I think is interesting, and I am going to point out, I think, a slight flaw in your in your in your decision on where to put this. Because you have put this as your number one most disappointing movie of all time, but yet you have brought up a couple things that you really liked about it. Now, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you have nothing good to say about that movie. And I don't think you have anything good to say about Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. You, you didn't say anything good about it. I don't think you have anything good to say about it. So these are two movies that you have nothing good to say about, but yet you put a movie above them as the worser than those, but yet you have some good things to say about it. It's so that's where I'm confused <laughs> as to your decision to make this number one when there are some good things that came out of this movie. And I am in agreement with you on pretty much everything. I think the pod race was pretty good. I liked the Darth Maul lightsaber battle. Darth Maul himself was a cool character. You got into him. And the Duel of the Fates sound was great. Great song. You've left out a couple more things that I enjoyed. I actually enjoyed where they go through the underwater world. You know, my love of Aquaman and the undersea. They've got, and it's the, there's always a bigger fish. That's the, the whole, the whole joke to that scene is there's a big fish that bites the ship and then a bigger fish that eats that fish. And it was cool. I remember it was a really cool, moment and you're leaving out something that we sampled from that movie for we would love to go you we would do that all the time whenever we wanted to exclaim something it was a way to basically swear without swearing boo you that was, that was from the pod race yeah but uh, but yeah. it was a it was a part of the pod race Sebulba's big you know angry swear at the end which yeah. we thought was pretty funny and we love to sample that so the thing about episode one is yes it was a disappointment but it did bring us some joy in certain ways, and there are moments in that movie that are rewatchable, the pod race, the, the lightsaber battle. So, again, why I'm confused is why did you put this above two movies that I think are way worse? That you have, well, there's nothing you have good to say about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Well, nothing. my. <clears throat> 
those two I actually debated on which one would be at the top. And I think the, the reason I put Phantom Menace, this is not a list that is based on which movie cinematically is worse. This is more gauged on my level of disappointment. So while, and I will even admit, I've watched Phantom Menace more times than I've watched Indiana Jones because obviously anything greater than one is going to be bigger. And I've watched Phantom Menace more than I've watched the other Star Wars movies. But where I put this in is that in a, in, from the pivotal point of nine movies of our lives, all of that fall into the Star Wars saga, this marked the beginning of the disappointment. Hmm. Everything since then... Not to say that they're equally bad. Obviously, there have been some movies that are better. You know, like I agree, Rogue One actually, you know, was a little bit higher than, say, you know, some of the other follow-up movies. It was, Phantom Menace started it. And in fact, if I were to specify, I would probably say I, I think Attack of the Clones is actually a worse, more cringy movie than even Phantom Menace. But See, I think that too. I, but I put Phantom Menace because it started it all. It started the fall. It started the point where I realized... And this is, I think, my, my big theme here is that when there's a point, a tipping point when you realize it's never going to be what I thought it was going to be. This pretty much started it. No, no movie after that has ever risen to the point where, oh, you know what? I'd given up hope, but number episode eight came back and I actually, I love this one. I'm back into where I think it's, it's been what I wanted it to be. This was the first that lowered my expectations, but I realized I will never get my Star Wars back that I was hoping for. Remember, that was never going to happen. But when I thought it could be here, it lowered it down to here, and everything has stayed since. So I'm not saying that every movie is as bad as this one. I'm not saying this is as bad as than any of the other movies. But in terms of the arc of the feeling of disappointment in a movie, this one was the biggest fall. It had okay, the I'm highest ask you a question. the biggest I'm going to ask you a question. So, and you have to answer truthfully, and there's no way out of the answer. You have to give an answer. You're, you're going to be stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life, and you can only have one movie with you. But be, for that movie, you have to choose between three. You have to choose between Episode 1, Episode 9, or Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull. You have to take one with you. Which one would you take? Definitely not Crystal Skull. That one is the worst of the three. Then that should be um, your number one worst movie of all time. But it's not my That's, number one disappointment, though. There's a difference. Okay. They're, they're, like I said, they were really close. And and even the, the, the last one, Rise of Skywalker, isn't even, in terms of di uh, disappointment impact, isn't even close to mm -hmm. the impact that those two had. Because Phantom Menace made it easier for me not to hate Rise of Skywalker. Because it had already started the lowering of expectations a long time before that. And it only, okay. got, it only got perpetuated with the remaining two prequels and then even the movies after that. I lost hope. I had lost hope for anything Star Wars because of this movie. And nothing has ever come back. Unlike, like, say, you look at the first four, five, and six, Star Wars was great, right? We can never deny that that was... The impact of that was tremendous. Empire Strikes Back came out and I think at the time we didn't like it as much because it was such a downer of a movie but after time has gone by I've learned to put that one on a higher pedestal because I think it's actually a better movie in terms of cinem cinematic uh, the, the writing the, the, the characters and it's actually become my favorite of all the Star Wars movies so that actually went and raised the bar but since Phantom Menace my disappointment level bar has always been 
lowered. And while I've always hoped that the next one would, would rise and get me back, none of them ever did. And so after that, it's, my bar has just been low. And so by the time I got to Skywalk, I was like, eh, let's just finish it. All right. I'm not expecting anything. <clears throat> so that's, that's what it is. It's not which is the worst movie. Otherwise, it'd be a different scale. It's which one disappointed me the most and changed my, you know, what I'd had the highest hopes for. And Phantom Menace really killed it. Well, and I think the reason my Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is the, <clears throat> my number one disappointment, though, is because during that whole movie, I just wanted it to be over so I could leave the theater. I didn't feel that way during episode one. So I, I that's why... That's why that's yeah. got to be at the top for me. Because I, I remember sitting in the theater watching The Rise of Skywalker, and I just wanted it to be over. I, 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 I didn't feel as neg- I didn't feel that need to get out of there. I, I mm. just, I don't know. I felt like I was just, I need to just finish this. It's my responsibility <laughs> as a fan of Star Wars to just watch it. I'll take all the stuff because I'm already used to it. I'm already kind of expecting that I'm going to not like some parts and going to some stuff that's going to be really disappointing and bad. And some parts might go, oh, that's kind of cool. But for the most part, feel like, yeah, this is not what I'd hoped for. But that ship had sailed long before. All right. Fair enough. So I guess to answer your question, I never (laughs) answered your question. So which movie would I bring with me on the deserted island? Yeah. Phantom Menace that started my disappointment or the last one that ended the, the trilogy or you say you already ruled out Crystal Skull Crystal Skull no that that, that will not show up again um, <laughs> it's too busy it's too it's too busy being a coaster right now for your drinks <laughs> yep that's a tough one man I, I feel like I know Phantom Menace really well so I know what I'd be getting I don't really feel like I know the Skywalker movie as well. In fact, I'm glad we're going to watch it again because I feel like I need to re, yeah. re-explore it. So at this point, I would actually say that just because I don't feel like I know enough of it to remember what I hated or didn't like or liked. Well, you just made Babu Frick a happy man. <laughs> I might come back and go, man, what was I thinking? One is way better than this movie, but uh, it's going to be close no matter what. But I say at this and- point right now, from just the fact that I feel like I need to, to dive a little bit deeper, I would say... The one that you hate the most is the one I would take on the island. <laughs> it's a really sad choice you give me, but if I have to take one, I guess at this point I would take that one. Okay, well, so, let's so move now, on because there's some more discussion that's going to take more place. Well, so that brings us now, we've done our top five, but now we go to our dishonorable mention. Right. <laughs> we'll start with yours. All right, so my dishonorable mention, well, it's kind of an interesting one. I actually... I, I diverted a little bit from <clears throat> movies. I really wanted to talk about just just what it means to be... I think that disappointment can come from people who are filmmakers. Their desire is so hard to change something to make it their own. And so this gets a little bit into television, but it also carries into to movies. And it has to do with Star Trek. Oh, and Star I really Trek. want to talk about... What was one of the greatest things about Star Trek The Next Generation, the TV show, is when they introduced an enemy race called the Borg. And I know you know who the Borg is. Yeah. The Borg, resistance is futile. They were by far the most interesting, scary enemy that that we'd seen in quite a while. They had no emotion. They were all about just finding any society and adapting it to service themselves. So they would just kill people or kill races and by killing them they would turn them into Borg 
But they had this ship that was cube-shaped, and it was the coolest ship. It was a cube, and I remember how cool it was. And it, it, it made them menacing and itself, it was something, there's something about a cube. It's, it, it, I think it symbolizes indestructibility to me in a way, uh, subconsciously. And so they made the Borg ship a cube and it was, the Borg were huge. And so they decide, because the Borg are so big, they, they bring them back. But what do they decide to do? Instead of them having a cube ship, they make them have a different looking ship. It's this ship that looks like any other ship. It's kind of a combination of pods that's connected mm. by a couple supporting arms. And I always think about the story, um, an artist named Greg Frares, who created the artwork for the Star Trek The Next Generation pinball machine, which he had to draw Picard and Worf and, all the, and Data and all the characters. And, and part of the pinball machine had the Borg, and so he drew this cube ship. And when it went for approval with the Star Trek people, Paramount, they came back and said, nope, we're no longer using the cube. Now you got to do the new ship. And I remember Greg, he's talked about this in talks that are online. He says, I'm thinking, but the cube ship is what the Borg is. And they hmm. said, nope, nope, we're changing it. We're making it better. So, so, so he had to draw back, this. When it came back, this is still the TV show or is it in the yes. movie? Yes. Still, it's I'm, still get, a, okay. I'm getting to that. Okay. All right. So he changed, he had to change his artwork to make the Borg ship this this typical looking ship, nothing interesting about it. And I remember he said that the Paramount people told him that we're making it better, this is how it's gonna be, we're evolving. And it was a failure, nobody liked that ship. So when they come out with the Borg in the Star Trek film, guess what, the Back ship is cube. a cube again. And it's still a cube in the new Star Trek Picard series. So my point is, is that I would love to know who the people were that felt the need to change that ship and why. Everybody loved it. The fans loved the Borg. But this is where you get into, uh, because a lot of our, our, our movies on our list were sequels. And I feel yeah. like the problem with sequels is that filmmakers feel this need to change something because they want to make it their own. Not because it's what's best for the story or best for the fans, but they don't want to do what the predecessor did. They want to put their own stamp on it. Many of these Star Wars movies have been directed by other directors. Right. Not the ones that made, or not <clears throat> Irvin Kirshner, who made our favorite. They bring right. in, you know, J.J. Abrams. He gave it a, a good try, but then they've got, I can't remember who did the next one. It wasn't J.J. Abrams. I've just read that there was all kinds of controversy between the directors on vision and creative ideas. But it just gets, the Borg is an example of, I think one of the biggest problems in filmmaking is when you try to take a successful franchise and expand it, make a good sequel, is you try to change too much. And I think that's the biggest problem. And so the reason I wanted to bring up the Borg ship in Star Trek is it's an example of, what I find interesting is that they changed the ship and they were convinced it would be great and it was an utter failure and it's like they put their, tucked their tail between their legs and went back to the cube. <laughs> and of course, that made everyone happy because the fans never wanted a different Borg ship. But to me, it just represents uh, more of a, a discussion on 
when you decide to take make a sequel or make something based on a franchise that exists, I think you really need to listen to your fans. And you need to put aside your own ego on that you want to make something different because you think it's what it needs. Give the fans what they want. It's like you said earlier, Norb. I just want a good car chase. I want a big bad guy. You know, simple things. Simple things. So really, my dishonorable mention is, is the Borg ship in Star Trek, which... I wanted to to correlate that into just our discussion today. <clears throat> oh, okay, interesting. Well, yeah, the question is who changed it and why. It wasn't like you know the if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <clears throat> and be interesting it to wasn't find out broken. You know, why? Yeah, it wasn't like people were complaining about them. I mean, they were just fine the way they were. Uh, why, why somebody would even propose to change something so rudimentary, so essential to what they were, and essentially re establish, recreate their identity would you know, really makes no sense. But that goes back to the whole thing with Lucas. He directed the first Star Wars, Episode Four, and then he's the one who did the one that I hate the most, which is, or, or was most disappointed by. And it was, it was his own design. So I can't fault somebody else. It was from the same guy who wrote and directed the first one that I loved, wrote and directed that one. The only difference I could see is that he was a much more powerful guy who could do everything he wanted and maybe it's a sign of if he could have done everything he wanted in the first Star Wars, which we kind of got a glimpse at when he started doing the special editions and started adding all these little digital creatures running around. <clears throat> maybe if he actually could do yeah. everything he wanted to in the first one, it wouldn't have been as good of a movie because he would have like, polluted it with all kinds of digital goofball creatures like <clears throat> he did when he had the opportunity. So maybe that is. Maybe throwing some restraint actually is a good thing because just because you can do it doesn't mean you should, right? That's a... Uh, that's one of those things where too much of a good thing or trying to be too fancy, you know, is, it, it reminds me of you know, that, that Harrison Ford, the Call of the Wild, right? It's called the Wild, the digital yeah. dog. Why not yeah. just go with a dog? It's worked before. We've seen so many movies with a real dog. People love it. But when you put a well, fake like digital Rob on it, said, they, they really just wanted to, it to be Harrison Ford with Scooby-Doo in a movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's worse. And it was probably a lot more work than it would have been to, to get a real dog, I'm yeah. guessing, because we did a lot more movies without digital dogs for a long, longer time that were much better. You know, so if you ever want a good <clears throat> trip down memory lane, Norb, uh, I... Uh, Keith, my friend Keith, gave me a copy of these, but you've heard of the Star Wars despecialized editions, right? Oh, basically taking out all the new edition stuff out and putting it back yeah, to where... a person it, out there found high-def source footage from everything he could to recraft the three movies that Lucasfilm and Disney refused to release. Right. That before they did all the digital changes, so I have them. So if you ever want to watch them, it's actually a wonderful, comforting trip down memory lane. Just to even, <sighs> even get back in Return of the Jedi and hear that and not that new yet with Yasm going, you know, that terrible musical recreation that just ruined that whole Jabba's palace scene for me. It's so nice to just go back and see the stuff that at least was from our childhood because that's the yeah. thing is we we can't even relive our childhood anymore with the movies they released right <laughs> because they digitally the, altered them even the ending victory song remember it used to be just a oh. very kind of basic yup yup yeah they got rid of the yup yup song instead it made this whole weird it's like yanny fluty kind of thing which is like what the heck this is not this is not the the Return of the Jedi that I grew yeah. up with. 
So, yes. what is your well, dishonorable mention? So, this you're going to be shocked when when you see this one, but it's, it it goes along the same line of thinking. So maybe you won't be shocked after we already Tron had the debate. No, no, that <laughs> I, that could have been up there too, but no, I did not. No, this is probably the best of the the, the of what I would put on my dishonorable mention. But I would put down Matrix Reloaded. That's mm. the second of the three Matrix movies. I could, I could see that. I'll yeah, write. The, I'll tell you the story here. On freedom, freedom Fighters, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, and Trinity, Carrie Ann Moss, and Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne, continue to lead the revolt against the machine army, unleashing their arsenal of extraordinary skills and weaponry against the systematic forces of repression and exploitation. In their quest to save the human race from extinction, they gain greater insight into the construct of the Matrix and Neo's pivotal role in the fate of mankind. Now... This movie is probably the most watched, rewatched movie of the ones that I don't like of, of all of them here. Because we watched this quite a bit in, in its aftermath because it has some really good rewatchability sections. It does. It's almost weird to, to complain about this and to have this movie in the list when it has some amazing sequences, particularly the, the big, what are they called? The big brawl, the burly brawl. Is that what's the burly called? brawl in the, in the burly, freeway chase. Burly brawl, the freeway Great chase. Parts. Um, actually, those two are kind of the it. <laughs> I can't remember. No, there's another fight. There's like a gunfight on the stairs. Yeah, that's, that's cool movie, too. Right? The gunfight yeah. on the stairs. Um, but I think the biggest thing, again, is when, after we saw The Matrix, The Matrix was one of those movies where there was life before The Matrix and then life after The Matrix. <clears throat> Just like there was life before Star yeah. Wars, life after. Life before Raiders, life after. Life before Die Hard, life after. And these are all movies that changed the genre. You know, there, all of a sudden there was all sci-fi yeah. movies. After Raiders, there was all kind of adventure movies. After Die Hard, there was Die Hard in a something, in a, in a train, in a bus, in a, in a, in a, in a different building. On a, a boat. In a boat, yeah, exactly. So they started things. And then Matrix, with its special effects and everything, set and, and set and the style is still imitated today, 30 years later or 20 years later. So going into this one, the, the hype, uh, once again, was up there with the Star Wars level because we've been so blown away and so not expecting anything from the first Matrix. And then when this came out, there were just some fundamental things that just, it was hard to put the finger on as to why this was not, just wasn't working as well as the first one. And I think it was that whole thing of getting too complicated. You had so many more characters, so many more villains. There wasn't just kind of like the one. There was all of a sudden like three or four different, they had the twins and you had the the, the multiple copies of the, the bad guy. And there's just so many more things to deal with. But I think one of the things that were, one of the biggest plagues, but at the end of The Matrix, if you recall, Morpheus gives a speech, talks about, you will no longer be in control. I can't remember what he says, but it's got the Rage Against the Machine music playing, and he looks up in the sky, and he <laughs> takes off like Superman. And I remember when The Matrix was over, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, nothing can stop him now. And that's part of the problem with this movie, was that yeah. once you become a guy who can fly like Superman and just take off out of a situation, it almost makes any fight sort of pointless. Because why even engage in it when all you could just do is fly around and just fly into guys, fly away when it gets back, fly back in? It's too powerful. It's too much at your... Disposal, and I've always we've always complained about movies that have indestructible villains or indestructible good guys. It makes it less in, enjoyable when you feel like your guy doesn't have a weakness, 
And unfortunately, that part was always lingering in my head, like, well, why not just, why not just fly away, Neil? Why bother getting into a fight? You just fly out of there, or just fly into them, or fly and fly back. I mean, the ability to fly is way too powerful of a thing. It's like Captain America, or what, Cap, what was her name? The Captain, uh, oh, no, um, what was the girl in uh, <laughs> the Avengers, the last, the last movie? Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel. I hadn't seen Captain Marvel before I saw that movie, and then she comes flying in. Also, like, who's this chick? She's got way too much power. There's no way to stop her. Anyway, I should have seen that movie before I saw the last movie. Kind of messed up things for me. But again, same thing. When somebody has so much power, it makes that character's interest a lot less less interesting because they're unstoppable. And that was one of the biggest things I felt like was always in the back of my head was why go through all this when all I can do is just always just fly off. And so, one of the coolest movies with great effects, great sequences, but in the end, the thread of it all just, it, it was, and I know a lot of people feel the same way, one of the biggest sequel disappointments that was really well done, just disappointment level was so, such a big drop from the first movie. And I don't well, know, you know if you feel the same way. I don't. After, after watching The Matrix Reloaded many, many times since I saw it the first time, it's grown on me more and more. I enjoy it. I... I understand what they were going for with the story. It, there were some confusing things the first time I saw the movie, especially at the end when he gets in the room and he meets the architect and the architect tries to explain to him that, you know, you're just like other predecessors. You're just the next one. You're no big deal. You're part of a, a program that we use that just helps to minimize how many how many programs we lose. I like that. and and But it took me watching The Matrix Reloaded many times afterwards to finally understand many things I didn't get the first time around. And I love the Burly Brawl. I just, I can't, I never get tired of watching that Smith fight. It is, it is so cool. And the traffic chase is great. Just some of the best action I think I've ever seen. So as time has gone on, I've been more and more forgiving because the first time around, I just think expectations were sky high, like you say, but, but over time, I, I don't have any problem with the second or third movie. Uh, you know, the first one will always be the best. But two and three, to me, are not are not that bad. So Well, I might have to give it another shot. In fact, I took the girls. They had a re-release of The Matrix in the Dolby Theater, and I brought the girls to watch Matrix. Their first viewing of The Matrix was in that was in I that was theater. with you. And you were with me. Was, you know, and so that was cool to be able to watch that again with the biggest possible screen, the best possible sound. And I have not gotten to getting, I've not been motivated to have them watch the second or third one just because it still lingers with me, the disappointments of those two. So I haven't bothered to show them those two movies. I don't know if they were into it that much anyway. Yeah, it it wouldn't be probably their top five necessarily movies, but I certainly didn't even try to encourage them to watch two and three because of my feelings of disappointment that these two would not be any good to watch anyway. So... But that's probably more of a of more of a byproduct of me, of my disappointment, as opposed to that they themselves wouldn't like the movie. But I might have to give it another shot. I do. Two definitely has more rewatchability than three. I can't tell you anything about it. I remember about three, but two definitely has those sequences that we talked about that are really cool. So all right, there we go. Well, the final thing to talk about in the show here is related to the surprise that I put something together. But this is really uh, a way to initiate one final discussion of everything we've talked about in this show. 
I have uh, lately been spending a little time paying attention to some of my favorite 80s science fiction television shows. And back with our love of Star Wars, after Star Wars came out, you know, we, we wanted anything we could get Star Wars, which is why they created the Battlestar Galactica TV series and then Buck Rogers in the 25th century, pretty much right after it. And I, I have all these shows on disc and... Um, I was uh, uh, digitizing a few of them so I can watch them later a little bit easier. And what I have as part of my Battlestar Galactica collection is Galactica 1980. And, <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and just uh, the look on Norm's face says it all. It's, it, it was considered a flop at the time. They, and what they were doing is the problem with making those shows back then is they were really, really expensive to make for television. When you do sci-fi back in the 80s, you had to have sets and the special effects were expensive. And so Galactica 1980 was a way to try to keep it going but save money. So they thought, okay, let's have them get to Earth. But Buck Rogers in the 25th century is also... Another same example of a show that had a pretty good first season, but the second season they tried to make it Star Trek, where they're on Searcher, another way to save money and come up with a set that you could reuse. But I have in my collection some Buck Rogers in the 25th century trading cards, which I really like having these. I, I And I actually can't remember how I got them. I got them when I bought something Buck Rogers. But these are cards from the 80s, suspended in time, there's Captain William Buck Rogers and a picture of the lost space shuttle. That was his shuttle lost in space. This is kind of a funny one. Frozen alive. And just a couple left. The Draconian Fortress, which was the enemy ship that discovers Captain Rogers. And then the Integrators. And there's Princess Ardala. And Princess Ardala. I know Norb has a special place in his heart for Princess Ardala. And the last card, a delirious spaceman. Buck was a little drunk when they found him drunk of, I think, too much oxygen uh, or adapting to the atmosphere of the ship. So, but where I want to get go with this, Norb, is that Buck Rogers in the 25th century and Galactica 1980 and even the Battlestar Galactica, you know, you talk about things we want to show our kids. And... I'm not going to show my kids any of these shows because they are, by today's standards, pretty bad. Right. You watch them, they're cheesy, they're, they're, they're goofy. I mean, they're, they're so bad on many levels, but I love them. And, they're, and Rob described it, we were talking about this. They're a, they're a comfort food for, for you and me and Rob and other friends of ours that are of the same age that grew up watching those shows. And so what I find interesting about thinking about that is Galactica 1980, I, I loved Battlestar Galactica. I ate up anything Star Wars. And when they came out with Galactica 1980, I was in. I was in. And so was I. it took until a very significant moment that I remember in Galactica 1980 where the Cylons finally landed on Earth. And a Cylon is chasing our protagonists and they end up stumbling in on a Halloween boxy. party. Yeah, I remember boxy. On a the Halloween main character party. was Boxy. The main character was Boxy, the son of Apollo, but he's grown up now in this, right. in this show. But yeah, the Halloween party, I continue. 
That was the moment where the Cylon is chasing them and they end up in this Halloween party. And this one girl at the Halloween party says to the Cylon, hey, that's a really cool costume. And I remember at that moment, I thought, this is not my Battlestar Galactica anymore. And this is when I'm 10 years old. I know. And that was it. After that, I stopped watching it. And so I have yet to actually see The Return of Starbuck, which was the last one, which I've heard was pretty good. So I am going to watch Galactica 1980 again. It's only about 10 shows, but Rob has offered to watch it with me just because so we can share that comfort food together. And it's go- I know I'm going to enjoy them, but what I'm anxious to find out is how am I going to feel when I get to that ho- that Halloween party scene? Am I going to watch it now and is it not going to bother me? Because now it's this whole thing is just a comfort food. So where I'm going with that is that I wonder, Norb, when you and I are 80 years old, will watching Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, will, will it be more of a comfort food because Harrison Ford will be dead, Steven Spielberg will be dead, all the people that made those movies will be gone, and all that's left is the film. Will we watch Crystal Skull 30 years from now, and will we be thankful to watch it, or will it not bother us as much as it does now? And and I can't answer that. I can't answer that. So when I get to this Halloween party scene in Galactica 1980, I think I'm going to be much more forgiving than I was as a kid. Because now this show is is just a part of my childhood, and it's it's one of the few things that I can go back to if I want to really feel like a kid again. But I also know these shows are not considered now to be very well liked by people. And I'm not going to show them to my kids. They won't get into it. I'm not even going to subject them to, to the torture that it would be to watch those shows, which for me as a kid, I loved them. I loved them. And, and even just as I was preparing some of them to watch, it's like visiting an old friend, you know, seeing Buck Rogers and Wilma Deering talking and, and even the music and, and the, the bad sound effects that they reused over and over. To me, they're so comforting. And that's yeah. why I think psychologically there's such an interesting thing that goes on when you talk about what's great and what's not great. So I really just wanted to save the, the last part of the show to talk about that and ask you, what do you think, Norb, about about when you look at, you know, what does something mean at the time versus what does it mean when enough time has gone by to where, you know, your your intense feelings about something maybe are not as intense? Well, I'll, I'll make a prediction that I don't like Crystal Skull now and I don't think 30 years from now I'm going to like it any better. I, mm-hmm. I I feel like when I look back at Galactica 1980, uh, the Star Wars Christmas special... Those movies or those shows were bad then. As a kid who ate everything up and was probably as forgiving as I'd ever be, I didn't like them at the time. And years later, after watching the Christmas special, it's just as bad now. I just have a better understanding why it's bad, but it's bad. And Galactica 1980 was one of those things, too. I was like, oh, more Battlestar Galactica. They get to Earth. How exciting. And then you start watching. It's like, oh, this is not Battlestar Galactica at all. And... I don't see how just because of the passage of time would change my feelings of of that show. And we've even talked about it. you watched you tried to watch Crystal Skull again. You had the same feeling. 
I've watched. Well, I've I'm talking watched, about thirty years later, though. I'm not talking well, about just a few years later. But Phantom Menace, we're already you know twenty years past that show, and I don't think I would put it in and suddenly have a realization like you know what this is actually pretty good. Those things that bothered me before they don't bother me anymore. I think they would still still bother me. I kind of hold a grudge in that way because once I've already had an emotional feeling about it, chances are it's going to stay that way. Um, maybe small things might be different um, in a movie that has levels where I wouldn't have understood something then and I understand it now. But these aren't that kind of movie. Star Wars doesn't hit you on that kind of a deep level. I think other movies are a little more mature where as a kid I wouldn't have understood it. I might understand something more now. But what I do find interesting is the dilemma I often face is when I try to find movies to watch as a family or from, with my kids. Because I'll see all these old things on Netflix or Prime Video or whatever. And these are movies that at the time, at the time are ones that I remembered really liking. And then I have to stop and think, okay, just because I liked it and it has a special place for me, is it going to translate and become something that my kids are going to watch? And I try to cheer, I try to treat the movie time we have as a we only have so many of these, so I want to make each one something that I know they're going to get something good out of, not just sort of a hey, here's a movie I liked, I liked when I was a kid. You're going to watch it now. And my kids are, I think, compared to yours, a little more picky. Particularly Vanessa is more selective no. on what they watch. No, they're not. <laughs> Maybe just by hair. Your kids will kind of watch whatever, but. You know, some people will pretty much watch whatever, but she'll also have an opinion on it. But I'm also thinking in terms of what do I want to put them through, where at the end I want to feel like I didn't waste two hours of something that they didn't get anything out of just because it's something I liked. So I give a lot of thought on that. And it's sometimes tricky with certain movies that I think are still good, but they're obviously dated, either because of the, maybe if it's an effects movie or just the production quality it has that old that old back then feel as Vanessa likes to say is this from back then um, some movies transcend and oh, I was and now I was she doesn't pleased. say olden days anymore now it's oh, back days. then well back then and olden days are, are kind of are kind of interchanged but every once in a while when we watch the movie and I, I see that they enjoyed it it's very pleasing like I'll give an example we watched a couple movies that I would consider they'd look at as back then older, older movies they're not that old Castaway, and um, Rain Man, for example. Rain Man was one that I always thought this was a you know these are uh, you know Oscar worthy movies, so I think they're worthy of watching. Uh, Forrest Gump, for that matter, and they they watched them. I think it was kind of a slow rolling, particularly with Rain Man. It takes a while to get into the character, but by the end of the mm -hmm. movie, they were all in. They really liked it, and it's always it's always satisfying when a movie that is from my either my youth or my, you know, growing up when I maybe in my 20s or something or as a teenager, and I can show them something and they can also enjoy it and watch it and connect with it. Because I do think it is hard to, with the advent of technology and everything, when you see a new movie and you compare it to the an old back then, <laughs> olden days movie, there's off, there's a definite sometimes line where it's like, oh, this is just just doesn't look and sound very good. And sometimes that does get a little bit in the way of the presentation. But there are those movies that can transcend that because they're just such great stories, such great scripts, such great characters that you get past that and you just get into the movie. And I think that's where we talked about at the beginning of this, this, whole, this whole discussion. 
that what comes down to it, you got to have those things. You got to have a story that's a, a great script. You have to have great characters. And then, you know, a, someone who can put that all together. And those old movies, I think when all that is done right, they do stand the test of time. And my kids are good filters of that. So when I find a movie that they can watch that's 30, 40 years old and they still can enjoy it, you know, that that's, that's saying something like, okay, this movie really does have, you know, that kind of classic value to it where it stands the test of time. I have a poster. I have a poster in my room of a Battlestar Galactica poster, not the new one, but the old one. I have it. I have it as one of my posters in my, in my edit studio. And my brother-in-law who's our age was over one time and he, he, he was looking at my posters and he pointed out and he says, you do know that's a Star Wars ripoff, right? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, look, the Battlestar, that's the Death Star. Boxy, that's C-3PO. You got Luke Skywalker as Apollo. Adama as Obi-Wan. It's a total Star Wars ripoff. He was very condescending of that. Almost like, why would I have this poster in my... And my response was, I loved it as a kid. And yeah, it was. I wanted anything Star Wars and I was happy to watch it. And I enjoyed it. I couldn't wait to watch a new episode of Battlestar Galactica. And then when they came out with Buck Rogers, I felt the same way. I ended up, I loved Buck Rogers. I loved the spaceships. Anything space science fiction, Star Wars-like was great for me. Mm -hmm. But to watch those shows now, my point is I think most people look at those shows as just terrible. They're campy, silly, yeah. But terrible to the point where they don't even want to watch it. They don't even want to give it a chance and I'm not going to subject my kids to watching those. I just don't think that they... I, I think the way you have to watch a show like that, I have to watch Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I have to turn my brain back. I have to put my brain in the 80s and picture myself as a kid on the couch waiting for it to come on at 8 o'clock. And when it was over, knowing I'd have to go to bed and just savoring every moment with Buck Rogers. And I can do that. But... I also know that that would be really hard to ask anyone else to do that. That wasn't from our generation that grew up watching those shows. Yeah, so, I, probably you, me, and Rob <laughs> would probably be the only ones who could actually pull together. Because yeah. there's a lot of kids who grew up in the same era who didn't like those shows either. Yeah. If they weren't into sci-fi, they could be our same exact age. And they were like, oh, I didn't watch that stupid show. So yeah. you have to be real specific uh, onto, as to what people liked at that time. And you, me, and Rob are a few of the people that I still stay in touch with who are still fans of those shows and would sit down and have a good, oh, I remember this, oh, this was a good episode, I remember this, you know, and, and have that feel-good walk down memory lane as you watch all the campy moments and recycled s- shots that you've seen from five, six, seven, eight other episodes. I mean, Buck Rogers, when they switched to season two, and, you know, you talk about Galactic Night, but season two was Searcher, and, and I've read all kinds of behind-the-scenes about all the fighting that was going on between Gil Gerard and, and the, the writers on season two of Buck Rogers. They, they could not agree but they decided to have Hawk become a regular character. And I really liked Hawk. He was cool. And I and I read that Gil Gerard was so angry that they made Hawk a regular. He said, you're turning this into the Star Trek Enterprise. Hawk <laughs> is Spock. And I'm Captain Kirk. And you've got, you've got the... The C, he, just C3 wanted, P. he just wanted to be the star. He didn't want to he share the He just wanted to be the star. Anybody. And I just, I laugh at, at all that. 
reading you know, about funny all that though, I didn't even think about that there was a this season not as good as the other one. I just watched it like, okay, I guess they're on the ship now. I, I just yeah, I ate too. it all up. I didn't care. I, I didn't feel like any one was worse than the other. I just ate them all up. They were all yeah. great in my in my mind. But well, yeah, the show I, I has been the show's been long. I think we broke a record. We did. We're, we're two, over hours two hours almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so who who would have known the, the longest show would be the one where we're talking about the movies we hated. Yep. But sometimes that is. It's more fun to talk about stuff you didn't like than stuff you liked. But well, I guess <laughs> if, if anyone who's still with us Buck Rogers sidekick was tweaky. And if you're still with us, I want you to put that in the comments. And I expect <laughs> nobody to write that in the comments. But if you were listening, put that you heard me say Buck Rogers' sidekick was tweaky, and I will have a, have the utmost respect for you. I, I, it would blow my mind if somebody actually listened this long. Even even our longtime friends, this is a long time to listen. It's spread out yep. over a few days to get through this show. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, it was fun to talk about it. Open up some old wounds of some movies that really broke our hearts and changed <laughs> our lives for the worst in terms yeah. of of disappointments. But that is what life is all about. We're going to go through many disappointments, I'm sure, to come, whether it be life moments, movie moments. And unfortunately, you got to roll with it and just move along. So that's what we're doing. And this show's got to move along, too, because it's gone way too long. So uh, I guess just to wrap things up, again, thank you for spending there's a long chunk of time listening with us. And for those of you watching on YouTube, thank you so much. Again, hit that like button, subscribe, and hit that bell so that you'll be alerted to every new show that we put out. And for everyone who's listening on the podcast, we appreciate your support. And tell your friends to, to check it out as well. I'm Norb. And I'm Mike. And we are The Watchmen. Thanks for watching. We will see you next time. Thanks for watching The Watchmen. Please click on here to watch other episodes and be sure to hit that like button too. And please subscribe and hit that notification bell. That way you'll always be alerted to any future episodes. It really helps us out and we appreciate it. We'll see you next time. And remember, we'll be watching.